Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll start reading uh, verse 14 is where we stopped last week. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. <laughs> Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to gather together tonight to study your word. And Lord, we do uh, pray that you would use this time to build up our faith, Lord, to cause us to walk in your ways and to uh, persevere uh, in our faith to the very end. Uh, so, Lord, we ask for you to guide us tonight, Lord, into all truth, uh, and that, Lord, you would grant to us understanding so that we might uh, keep your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so here we are in chapter 9, uh, again, dealing with uh, various narratives uh, describing uh, the ministry and the life of Christ, his teachings, the things that he was doing as he went here and there, uh, doing good, uh, healing people, casting out demons, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is what his life consisted of, was ministry, the ministry of the word, and then going, doing good deeds uh, to people, right, uh, delivering them from various afflictions and doing these types of things. And it is uh, we remember that Jesus says, for what good deed are you going to stone me? What good deed are you going to put me to death for? Right? Which one of the many good deeds that I've done is going to be the basis for your execution of me? Because it was completely ridiculous that they would be so set and opposed to him. Because he wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a rabble rouser. He wasn't a rapist or a thief. He wasn't doing anything like that. He was doing good to people, yet they hated him because they could not bear to hear his words. That was the issue. They hated his words because he spoke truthfully concerning sin and judgment and the way of God, and that's what they didn't want to hear. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He came testifying to the light. He came into the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him, and even his own people did not receive him uh, because of their unbelief. But those who believed in him, Right, Those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And they were born 
by the will of God. And so you see this contrast in the reception of Christ, and this is manifest even in the passage we'll be looking at tonight, that there are some who believe in him, and there are others who are saying that he casts out demons by the prince of demons, that this is the way he does this. So a mixture in this way, some for him, some against him. And this is the way it'll be in our own day as well. There will be some with us and for us, and there will be some who are against us and who will oppose us, and we should not be surprised if the whole world does not love us and want to befriend us, because that certainly was not the case with Jesus Christ. So let's pick up in verse 14. Here we see a question about fasting, a question about fasting. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now here, the striking thing about this is it's the disciples of John who are the one that are bringing this question, uh, but they're doing it along with the Pharisees and with the disciples of the Pharisees. Okay, so likely what has happened here is that the Pharisees are the ones that are instigating. The Pharisees, we know, are the enemies of Christ, and this question is coming as an accusation, right? This is an accusatory question. Why is it that your ministry, why is it that you and your disciples are not fasting, right? We fast, the disciples of John, and the Pharisees and their disciples fast, but why is it that you and your disciples are not fasting? And here, I think what's happening is that the Pharisees are getting into the ear of John's disciples, sowing discord among the brethren, so that now even those who are not in opposition to Christ, because if they're John's disciples, then what do they believe? And what did John tell him? John told his disciples very clearly that he was not the Christ. And he told them very clearly that that man over there, that is the Christ. This is the one that I've been preaching about, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? John told them that very clearly, that he was not worthy to even untie his sandals, and that that is the one, he is the one that they should believe in, and that John's disciples had begun to follow Jesus, and John was happy about this because he must decrease and Christ must increase. So there's no opposition between John and Jesus. Their ministries are in complete, perfect harmony with one another. So there should be no opposition in between John's disciples and Jesus's disciples. And yet here, John's disciples are coming and presenting this question, and it includes the Pharisees, right? Why would they bring up the Pharisees other than somebody's in their ear? Someone's in their ear, and in other passages, that it is the Pharisees and John's disciples who are doing this together. So likely then, the Pharisees who don't like Jesus are putting this in the mind and in the ear of John's disciples, trying to sow discord among those who are not in opposition to one another. And this is how wicked men behave. They want to drive and separate people. Jesus and John are in perfect harmony and unity with one another, and yet what do they want to do? What do evil people do? They want to cause strife among brothers. They want to bring separation, sow doubt, right? Bring these things up so that those who are friends with one another, those who are united with one another in faith, now there is some seed of doubt in their mind concerning Christ and the way that he's conducting himself, right? Why is he not fasting, right? We do this, and certainly there's a place for that. John taught his disciples to do those things. The Pharisees, they do it and their disciples do it. But Jesus and his disciples, why is it that they are not fasting? Now, certainly we know there's nothing wrong with fasting. That fasting done properly, the correct way, should be a part of the Christian life. And it can be done in a right way that is done with faith and that brings glory to God. And it is an evidence of one's godliness, one's righteousness, one's commitment and reverence before God. So, we can fast and we should fast for the right reasons, right? For the right reasons in the right way. And if a person chooses to fast, say they, they commit and say that once a week there's this issue uh, that's been going on in my life or there's some sin that I'm wanting to overcome and I'm going to set aside uh, one day a week and I'm going to fast and pray that day for God to give me grace, to give me wisdom, to give me strength, so that I might overcome this sin. Is there any problem with someone choosing to do that and setting that aside and doing something like that? Of course not, if they're doing it with faith and if they're doing it the right way. But can I go around then and say to everyone, well, if you're not fasting once a week like me, then you're not godly. 
then you're not committed to God. You're not serious about the Christian life. But why is it that I'm doing this, but you're not doing it? I can't do that because nowhere in the Bible does it command me that you have to fast one day a week, right? It doesn't do that anywhere in the Bible. So we can't go around and do these types of things. This would be Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. Romans 14, verse 5 and 6. says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Here, again, I take this to be fast days, fasting days, right? Because he's talking about eating and not eating, and it is in observance of a day. And whenever a person does not eat in observance of a day, what are they doing? They're fasting, right? So one person regards one day above another in regards to fasting. He sets aside this day and says, this day of the month or this day of the week, then I'm going to set aside from the other days because commonly, what do we do day in and day out, right? Commonly, we eat but I'm going to set this day aside from common use for an uncommon use, right? I'm going to make it greater than the others in terms of this religious activity, and I'm going to devote myself to fasting in this day. And is there any problem with someone doing that if they're doing it for the Lord? No, of course not. However, he also says that another person regards every day alike. There's another person, and he regards every day alike. He's not setting aside this one day a week or this one day a month, but he's treating every day alike, and he's eating as you commonly would do every day of the week. And he says each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. So if the one wants to set aside the day, then set it aside, observe it for the Lord, then he should do that. But if the one does not set aside the day and he eats, then that's fine. Eat to the Lord and give glory to God. And it doesn't matter one way or another, right? Each one is fully convinced in his own mind. So if there are mandated fast in the Bible, then we should keep those. And there were very few of those in the Old Testament. There were a few days that were set aside for fasting, but for the most part, fasting is left up to each individual person to practice as they choose and as they see fit. And they set it aside according to, to their own uh, desire and whatever God uh, they do before the Lord. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. So for them to even be asking this question is presupposing that those who fast are more godly than those who do not fast. That they have attained to a higher godliness, right? They're more committed, they're more serious to God because they're fasting, whereas Jesus and his disciples are not fasting, so why is there this dilemma, right? Why is this going on? So this is a, a non-issue, right? It's a non-issue in these regards, yet it is being brought forward in the question, and the question is, I believe, an accusatory question, right? It is poking at them and, and saying, why is it that you are not doing this? Well, verse 15, Jesus gives the answer. Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Here, Jesus' answer is that he's using an analogy or an illustration in terms of a wedding, right? Whenever the bridegroom is with the attendants, it's a day of celebration. It is a day of rejoicing. It is a day of happiness. And whenever the attendants are with the bridegroom, then they're not mourning, but they're rejoicing. And fasting is a activity that goes with sorrow, with mourning, with sadness. It doesn't go with rejoicing and happiness and joy. Well, when the bridegroom is there, it's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. And this is why Jesus says his disciples are not fasting. Because who's with them at this time? Yeah. Who's with them in person? The Lord Jesus Christ is with them. All of the promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in their presence, right? They are there with the Christ and they are his disciples and they are witnessing 
all of these things. So this is not time to be sorrowful, to mourn, to be sad. This is time to rejoice because they are with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not the time to fast. It is the time to rejoice. Now he says, the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then it will be time for them to fast. So he's not saying there's never a time to fast. And he's not even saying that his disciples will never fast. He's simply saying that at this point of time, it is not the time for them to fast, but a time is coming when it will be time for them to fast. And that is when the bridegroom is taken away. So here, their, their fundamental problem is they're not recognizing the seasons and times. They're not seeing what's going on and then accommodating their practices according to what is taking place in time and history. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us this in verse 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 says, here is this uh, poem where it's talking about a time and season for all things, right? That we have to understand when we're living the Christian life and when we're going through this life, that whatever circumstance arises, we have to respond in the proper way. And that there is a time for one response and then there is a time for another kind of response. And in verse 4, he says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, right? So whatever circumstance, whatever situation is presented to us in life, there are some times that weeping is the proper response, right? right? Whenever some loved one dies, that's not time to laugh and to dance. If now, if you don't like the person, it is. But but if it's someone that you love who is near and dear to you, then that's a time of weeping. And we right. see this in the righteous throughout the Bible, right? Whenever their uh, Abraham's wife dies, whenever Jacob dies, Joseph he mourns for him, he weeps for him. Even the Canaanites say he must have been a very great person because of the lamentation and the weeping that was going on amongst Joseph and his brothers. So yes, there is a time to weep, but there's also a time to laugh. There's a time to rejoice. There's a time for those things as well, such as a marriage, such as the birth of your first child or your second, third, fourth, or fifth, and want to leave any of my kids out, whatever, right? You're excited. That is a time of rejoicing whenever that happens. No one's weeping and crying. I mean, if they are, it's tears of joy, right. but they're not weeping and crying for sadness whenever their child is born, right? Unless they are insane. So no one does that. So we have to see what the situation calls for and then respond accordingly. And that's what Jesus is telling them, that it is not time for his disciples to weep and mourn and fast. It is rather time for them to rejoice, right? To be filled with joy because they are with and in the presence of Christ. Also, John chapter 3, verse 29 John 3.29 says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. There again, the imagery of the bride and the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom, right? Christ being the bridegroom, but the friend rejoices in the presence of the bridegroom. He greatly rejoices whenever he hears his voice. So John rejoiced to see Christ. Didn't he do that even in the womb? He was rejoicing when uh, Mary came and Christ was even in his presence in the womb. He rejoiced when he saw him in this life. And how can then his disciples and the Pharisees criticize Jesus's disciples and Jesus for not fasting whenever this is a time of joy and a time of rejoicing? Then verse 16 and 17, Jesus gives two illustrations to uh, show what he means. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the worst tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined 
but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Here, he's applying this to the present circumstance, right? Jesus's presence, right? Jesus being with them is not suitable to fasting, but rather it is suitable to rejoicing. And in this way, a, uh, a, a unshrunk piece of cloth is not suitable to an old garment because when the unshrunk piece of cloth pulls away, whenever it is washed and it begins to shrink, it's going to rip the garment that the patch it was supposed to make and it's going to make it worse. Also, new wine is not, you cannot accommodate it to old wineskins because if you put it in the old wineskins and it begins to ferment and to expand, it's going to burst those wineskins and then it's all going to be lost and it's going to be poured out. And in the same way, Jesus being with his disciples is not suitable for fasting and mourning, but rather it is suitable for rejoicing, right? Just like being at a wedding, right? The wedding is a time of joy, a time of rejoicing, with feasting, right? With celebration, right? Who would call a fast at their wedding? A tightwad would maybe, but uh, right? Somebody didn't want to pay any money for food, but no one does that, right? Who would do that? Say, we're going to fast and mourn and weep because I'm getting married. No, it's a day of joy. People long for that day. They look forward to that day. That is the way that you do it. Or if a child is born, we're going to fast because we had a child. No, it's a time of celebration and it's a time of rejoicing. This is the way that you respond, right? No one would do that, right? No one would say, well, you know, half of marriage is in in divorce. So, you know, we should really be somber at this occasion. But who would want a sourpuss like that around at their wedding? No one would. But there are people who think like that. But also, if a child dies, is somebody going to have a party for that? Balloons and streamers and a big get uh, hoorah, you know, all that type of stuff? No. That's a time to be somber and sad, to weep and to fast and to mourn and to put on sackcloth. So that's what Jesus means here. The present circumstance is not suitable for fasting because he is with his disciples. Just like a new piece of cloth is not suitable to an old garment and new wine is not suitable to an old wineskin, right? You have to have what is suitable and right. And there's a time coming when it will be suitable for them to fast, but that time is not here. So why are you criticizing us? Why are you criticizing us unjustly for not fasting? You need to understand these things. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Here, while he was saying these things, here we see, one, that Jesus' life was constant ministry, constant answering questions, constant uh, being antagonized by people, there's always someone with a need, with something that was being brought to the attention of Christ. And he's having to deal with these things all the time. So his life was filled with ministry. It was rigorous. It was nonstop, right? Many times he would have to go by himself to desolate places just to get away so that he could pray to his God and to his father, right? He would have to do those things. While he's saying these things, here someone else wants his attention. And in this case, it's good. This man, it says, who is a synagogue official. Now, we know from Mark chapter 5, verse 22 in other Gospels that his name is Jairus. Jairus is the synagogue official who comes to Christ. And here again, we see that Jesus is not against Jews and he's not against synagogue officials. Though many times the synagogue would be a place of hostility to Christ, this wasn't universal. That there were some who were believers. And this man is a synagogue official, meaning he's one of the rulers of the local synagogue. And in their day, they had synagogues in all of the towns. And this is where the people went to hear the word of God, to be taught the word of God. It would be similar to our churches. This is where they met and where they gathered in the local synagogue. And those synagogues had rulers, those who were the elders or the rulers over that synagogue who administered and took care of the things that needed to take care of, but also administered the word of God to the people. And here, Jairus is one of those synagogue rulers, one of the officials of the synagogue. 
and he is not opposed to Christ, but rather he comes and bows down before him. So that shows his humility, right? He's a humble man. He's not coming as an equal or as a peer. He understands and knows who Christ is, and he's showing his humility, his submission to him, by bowing down before him. And then he says, My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. This manifests his faith, right? Because who believes that a man can do this, right? No man can do this. But he understands and rightly knows that Jesus is not merely a man. Only God can give life from the dead, right? This is true. We know this to be the case, that only God can give life. He is the giver of life. There is no man who has the ability to bring someone back from the dead. It is impossible, right? No doctor can do it. No hospital can do it, right? Whenever they you know, pull the plug, that's the end of it. There's nothing they can do to resuscitate or revive someone who is truly dead. Now, someone's heart might stop and they may be able to kickstart it again in, in that way and the person continues on. But once a person is pronounced dead, then it is impossible for them to be brought back to life by a mere man. So that he's coming to Christ and that he is requesting that Jesus bring his daughter back from the dead shows his faith in Christ, that he believes and knows that he is the Son of God, that he is the Son of God in human flesh, and that he and he alone possesses the power over death, that he has the ability to do this. It's just a matter of if he has the will to do it. Is it his desire and will to grant the request that Jairus has made? And in this case, Jesus does grant the request, right, in order to display his glory. Now, a couple of passages in why this is important. Why it is important in terms of these resurrections that took place in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Because these are uh, pictures of the resurrection of the last day, right? Though, again, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter is not the resurrection that we will experience on the last day, the final resurrection, when we receive uh, glorified bodies, right? She was resurrected with her mortal body, and then her mortal body would die again one day, just as it was with Lazarus and all the others who were resurrected. They were resurrected again back to this life, but it is a picture that Christ has the power to overcome death. He has that ability, and he will grant that power to all of his children on the day of judgment. Right When he returns, he will give us life from the dead. And that's what we need from Christ. This is what we need God to do for us. Yep. We don't have the ability to overcome sin and death. We need God to give us life from the dead. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews 2, 14 to 16. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, to the descendant of Abraham. So here, speaking of why it was necessary for Jesus to have a human body, to have human flesh, well, why did Jesus have to take on human flesh? Well, the children share in flesh and blood. We have flesh and blood. So he took on flesh and blood because he did not come to help angels. He came to help the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, and they have flesh and blood. And our flesh and blood needs to be redeemed. We need to be redeemed in our whole man, both body and soul. So he took on a human body and a human soul so that he might redeem fallen mankind, right? So that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil has the power of death. Now, again, he has this power, not outside of the will of God, right? right? He's not subverting God. He's not overpowering God. That's not the case. His power is a subordinated power to the will of God. But in a sense, he is the ruler of this world and he does have power over men, and he does wield the power of death over men through temptation and sin. The devil tempts us to sin, 
And then because of sin, what happens? We have death. This is how he has the power of death that he wields over the children of man, over Adam's descendants. Well, Christ came to deliver us, to take away the power, to render the devil powerless over the children of God, but that he would not have this ability over them anymore. And free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He came to set us free from the fear of death. Yep. Isn't this common in mankind? Aren't people terrified of death? What's going to happen to me when I die? Where am I going to go when I die? What's What happens after death? This question, it terrifies men because it's unknown to them. They don't know, but not for the believer. There is no fear of death for the child of God because why? Because we know that Christ has rendered powerless death. It does not have any power over us. Whatever power it exercises over us is temporary. It is only for a short moment in terms of our physical body, but it does not have any power over our souls anymore because for us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then ultimately, what will Christ do to our bodies? He'll resurrect them. So even there, death is rendered completely. Uh, it is The power of it is taken away by Christ so that we're not under the fear of death anymore. This is what he's manifesting in the healing of Jairus' daughter. Also, 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. First John 3, 7 and 8. It says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. Jesus came to destroy the devil, sin, and death, so that they have no power over us. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. It says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, where is death's death's victory, right? It's swallowed up in victory. It's swallowed up by Christ at his cross. His death, his resurrection renders death powerless over the believer, over the believer. Ultimately, God will give us victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jarius has to already believe this. He must already believe that he, Christ, has this power that will be exercised for all believers on the last day. But he's asking him now to temporarily manifest that power for the sake of his daughter, right? For the sake of his daughter and to be compassionate to him in that way. Then one last passage, John chapter 11. Right, his request for the temporal resurrection is coming from his belief in the ultimate resurrection. Right? That's the point that I'm trying to make here. He has to believe and understand the need for resurrection, the resurrection of the just on the last day. And it is his belief in that that is causing him then to come and ask Christ to do this for him now. John chapter 11, verse 17. This will prove that even in the Old Testament, because all of this is happening before the New Testament was written, 
and even amongst commoners, because Martha is a commoner. She's not an official. She's not a king. She's not a prophet. She's not an educated person in that way. There was the belief among the righteous in the resurrection, in the resurrection from the Old Testament. John 11, verse 17 says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. This is Lazarus. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she already believes this, right? I have believed this. Yes, I know these things are true that you are saying. And Jesus, and she's talking about the resurrection on the last day, which is the return of Christ, right? At the end of all things, when Christ returns and there is the general resurrection of the just and the unjust, the unjust to eternal damnation, but her brother, who is a just man, to eternal life. That this is what Christ will give him. So she's believing in that. This is what Jesus is talking about here. But then he raises Lazarus as an illustration of his power to raise all men on the last day. Okay, so that's the same would be true of Jairus. Whatever Martha is manifesting in her belief of Christ he's manifesting the same thing because he's coming to Jesus asking him to do something that is humanly impossible. And no one, if I came to one of you and asked you to raise a loved one of mine from the dead, you'd look at me like I'm insane, right? This is the way. But in this case, it's not insane because Jesus has the ability to do so. He has the power in himself. Okay, so Jesus is going to grant this to him. Okay, so they're on their way. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Here, this woman who's been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, a hemorrhage of blood. Now, if we go over to Mark, Mark chapter 5 gives us a fuller, more descriptive account of this interaction. Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 34. Mark 5, 25 says, A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Now, we'll have to stop there for a second because some things never change, right? These physicians, <laughs> right? they say they can help you, but they can't. All they do is take your money. That's what happened here. So they bled her dry. She was bleeding dry, right? Literally, and they bled her dry materially, right? Monetarily, they took and sucked all her money and she didn't get better. She only got worse. Anyway, okay, that's a side point. All right, 27. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeded from him, had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So here, this woman, she believes, if I just touch his garments, I will be well. So her faith is manifested as well, in that she believes 
that if I just touch him, even just his garment, he has the power to heal me. And I believe that I will be healed. Now, this isn't superstition. This is her faith, her belief in the person and work of Christ and what he has the power to do. And this is what happened. As soon as she touched him, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she knew she was healed of her affliction. And then Jesus has this interaction with her in order to affirm her, to affirm her for the sake of her faith and the faith of others in order to build her up in her faith. And it was her faith that made her well, right? Her faith, her faith manifested in her desire to touch the garment of Christ in order for her to be healed. So she also believes that Christ has the power to do these things. Okay, back to Matthew 9, 23. It says, when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowds in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. Here, Jesus, when he arrives at the house, the uh, mourning uh, process, the grieving process has taken place where there are these uh, people there uh, with their uh, flutes and the crowd in noisy disorder, right? Because it's, uh, it's, uh, sad. it's sad when anyone dies who is a loved one, but especially tragic when it's a child, right? A child, a young child, uh, this is taking uh, a premature death, right? And so in that way, it is an even more tragic event whenever a child dies. And this is why there's such disorder, such chaos that is taking place in the house. When Jesus arrives, he tells them to leave because the girl is not dead. She is merely asleep. Now, if we go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, Jesus isn't saying by this that she's just in a coma or she's in a deep sleep and they've just been mistaken and they think that she's dead, but she's really asleep. He's using sleep as a metaphor for death. And the Bible will use sleep as a metaphor for death for the believer, right? For the believer, because for the believer, death is a kind of sleep for their body. The body is laid as our bodies lay in our beds every night with the expectation in the morning that we will rise up out of our bed and go about another day. So the body of the believer is laid into the tomb, into the ground, but with the expectation that that body will rise up again to an immortal life, to a new life and to a new day in which they will serve God. And in this way, uh, the death of the believer is likened unto sleep, right? To mitigate the severity of it, right? Not that it's not severe when we die, but it shows you the kindness of God in that death is mitigated for the believer, right? For the believer so that it is a kind of sleep. First Thessalonians 4.13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words." So here, when he's talking about those who are asleep, he doesn't mean literal sleep. He means death, right? It's obvious that that's what he's referring to because that's what he's talking about in the passage. And then he's talking about the, the day of resurrection and how those who are alive on the earth, those believers who are alive on the earth, when Christ returns, will not proceed. They will not be called up to Christ before those who are asleep or those who have died. Those who have died will be resurrected first, and they will be called up to Christ, and then those who are alive will be called up to him as well. But that's the order. Those who died first, and then those who are alive will be called up secondly. So in this way, this is what Jesus means. She is dead, literally, but it's sleep because Jesus is about to overcome it. He's going to overcome it, and he's going to raise her from the dead. 
And then notice what they do. They began laughing at him. Well, here in a second, he's going to get the last laugh, right? He's going to get the last laugh at them. Uh, but here, they're mocking and ridiculing him. And this is the way of the Christian life, isn't it? Yeah. Blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. That people will reject us, they will laugh at us, they will mock us, they will ridicule us for faith in Christ, for living a godly and righteous life. And here, they're mocking Jesus when there's nothing, he's going to actually do this, right? He is going to raise her from the dead. So their mocking of him is unjust. It's unjust and it's not called for it. It shows their lack of faith. So here, even when he's doing good and when he's about to raise someone from the dead, he has his opponents. He has the naysayers and critics who are mocking him, though he is not doing anything evil or worthy of mocking, but rather they should be praising God for what is about to happen. Job chapter 12, verse 4, tells us this. Job 12.4, I am a joke to my friends, the one who called on God and he answered him. The just and the blameless man is a joke. Isn't this the way it is in this life? The just and blameless man is a joke. He's a laughingstock all day long because of his faithfulness, because he knows the power of God. He knows what God is going to do, and yet they mock and ridicule him. But that doesn't deter Christ. Verse 25, But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered, took her by the hand, and the girl got up, and the news spread throughout the land. So Jesus gets the last laugh. He gets the triumph over the naysayers and critics. Who's laughing now? Well, they're not anymore. Now they're amazed at what has happened. And this is the way it'll be for the righteous on the day of judgment, right? They are a joke now. They're the laughing stock now. But on the day of judgment, we will get the last laugh, right? God will grant that to his children against their enemies. They will triumph over them just as Christ triumphed over his enemies in this situation. 27. And Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them. See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. Here, he went on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Right, son of David. Now, this is important because... By calling him son of David, they are also showing their faith and their belief in the Old Testament promises concerning the Christ. Otherwise, why are they saying this? Why are they calling Jesus the son of David when at this point in history, what is the house of David? Right? There has not been a king of the Davidic line for over 500 years sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. So why are they referencing son of David, when the household of David has been brought to ruin and to nothingness, other than their understanding and their belief in the promises of the Old Testament concerning the descendant of David, right? The offspring of David, the one who would come from the line of David, who would be savior of the world, who would be the Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what God had promised. We see this in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22, verse 41. This belief that the Christ was coming into the world and that the Christ was the son of David was commonly believed even by unbelievers. Yeah. Even the unbelieving Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, even they knew that the Old Testament predicted that the Christ was coming into the world and that that Christ would be the son of David, that this is what the Old Testament taught. So when we say that the Old Testament preaches and teaches Christ, we're not fanatics and we're not crazy. We are in the historic interpretation, even the interpretation of the Jews commonly, even the unbelieving Jews during the time of 
Christ. Verse 41, 22-41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. So he asked them, point blank, what do you think about the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one? Right? Whose son is he? According to the flesh, according to his human descent, who does he come from? Right? And we know he comes from Abraham. He comes through Isaac. He comes through Jacob. He comes through the tribe of Judah. And then he comes through the family of David. Right? The family of David. Here, David is brought forward because in terms of his descent, David is the last significant figure that he would be a descendant from. That's why he's brought forward. He will be the son of David. And to David was given the promises concerning one of his descendants sitting on his throne for all eternity, okay? And that's what we're talking about here. So whose son is he? And they say he is the son of David. The son of David. So they know that he is the son of David. That's what these two blind men are saying. That's why they're calling him son of David, because they know they believe in the coming Christ, and they believe that Jesus of Nazareth is that coming Christ. That's what they believe. This is what the Jews didn't believe. They believed that the Christ was coming. They believed the Christ would be the son of David, but they did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was that Christ. But they do believe it. And then Jesus goes on to show them that David predicted that the Christ, his son, would be both fully God and fully man. This is why David calls him his Lord. Also, Acts chapter 2, 29 Acts 2.29. Acts 2, verse 29 says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and knew that God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So there, David knew, being a prophet, that God had sworn to set one of his descendants on his throne. Right, And that's what these two blind men believe, that one of his descendants will sit on his throne for all eternity, and that Jesus of Nazareth is that descendant, right? That is what they believe. Then one last passage, Luke 1, 68 to 70. This also would be a, another example. All of these are examples because um, in Matthew 22, none of the New Testament had been written yet. In Acts chapter 2, none of the New Testament had been written yet. And in Luke chapter 1, none of the New Testament had been written. Whenever these things are said, though they're recorded in the New Testament, when they were said, it was before any of the New Testament had been written. So all of this is coming from their knowledge of the Old Testament, the Old Testament, because the Old Testament itself preaches Christ and that he would be the son of David and that he would be God in human flesh. Luke 1, 68, this is Zechariah, Zechariah's prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. 
So here, he has visited us. He's accomplished redemption for his people. What was necessary for the redemption of his people, God has fulfilled. He has accomplished it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, he raised up a horn of salvation for us. And the salvation he's talking about isn't salvation from the Romans. It's not salvation so that we'll have a worldly empire, an earthly empire, and we'll rule the world as the Jews. That's not the salvation that was promised in the Old Testament. The salvation of the Old Testament has to do with what? Sin, the forgiveness of sins, right? Eternal life, right? Eternal life. Even Zechariah says that down in verse 71. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. So the redemption and salvation Zechariah is talking about doesn't have anything to do with some earthly millennial kingdom of the Jews. It has everything to do with forgiveness of sins. And who is the one to accomplish this? The servant from the house of David, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This he spoke by the mouths of his prophets of old. This is what the blind men have. They have this understanding, this belief, this faith that the Christ was coming into the world and that Jesus of Nazareth is that Christ, that he is God in human flesh, and he is the one who will redeem his people from their sins. And if he has the power to forgive them of their sins, he also has the power to heal them of their blindness. And so they come to him asking him if he will heal them, right? They say, uh, to him, the blind man come up and said to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. He says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord, right? Yes, Lord. So he is their Lord and their savior. Here again, showing their faith. Then he touched their eyes and said, it shall be done to you according to your faith. Right? What is the key component? Faith, right? Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Now, again, this faith is not originating in their free will. It is a faith that is granted to them by God, but without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Right. We must have faith. This is what separates, outwardly at least, one man from another. Again, not that the faith comes from the man. It does not originate in the man. It originates from God. It is a gift of God, but this is the difference between the one man and the other. They have faith while the others do not have faith, right? And then they, for they receive the mercy of God. He gives to them what they desire. It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were open, and Jesus certainly warned them, see that no one knows about this, but they didn't listen. They went and they told people uh, anyway. So in that way, it wasn't good, right? It wasn't good. Though he is their Lord and their Savior, they... He, they didn't obey him in this regard. They couldn't keep quiet. <clears throat> okay, verse 32. As they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He cast out demons by the rulers of by the ruler of demons. Here, another person, right? These are all just happening, you know. Sequence after sequence after sequence. A mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. Now, that sounds horrible, right? He's mute and he's possessed by a demon. But Jesus has the power to overcome this. He cast out the demon because he has power over the demons. No demon, no devil has any power over Christ, but right. he has power over them. And he delivers this man from the power of the demon. And the man began to speak. At this, the crowds are amazed saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, right? When has this ever happened? Not that there weren't miracles in the past, but the preponderance of the miracles, the, the magnitude of the miracles, the multitude of the miracles taking place in the person of Christ. Nothing had ever been seen like this, and nothing has ever or will ever be seen like this ever again on this earth. What Jesus did during his life and during his ministry. So they're praising God because of these things. But is everyone praising God? No. No. The Pharisees were there saying, he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. So here, the naysayers and critics, 
the antagonists, the enemies. They're always there with some criticism, with some critique, with some lie, because this isn't true, is it? It's a lie. They're lying about him. It's insane. It doesn't even make any sense at all. How can Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons? How can he be the ruler of demons and cast out demons? This doesn't make any sense at all. If we go over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Matthew 12, 25 says, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If by Beelzebub I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. For how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Right? Here, he's showing this, this is nonsense. This is idiotic. Right? What does Satan want to do to people? But destroy them. Right? He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He is the author of chaos, misery, death, destruction, confusion. That's what he wants to do. He wants to afflict people. Does Satan ever seek to release people from affliction? Never. No, he wants to bind them in affliction. Yet here, Jesus is releasing this man from an affliction, from being a demon-possessed mute man, and they're saying he does it by the power of Satan. But that doesn't make any sense because if Satan is fighting against himself, then his kingdom is going to is going to fall and it's going to right. crumble. Right? There's no way that this would ever happen. It would be like an army fighting against itself. Are they ever going to win a battle? Yeah. No, the other side just has to watch and let them kill each other. And then they're going to have the victory. It's never going to work out. That's not the way it works. So this doesn't make any sense. It shows you how desperate they are. How desperate they are to find something to criticize Jesus of. They do not want to believe him. They cannot deny what has just happened. It's right there in their presence. So then they have to come up with something, some reason to justify their unbelief. And in this case, what they're saying doesn't even make any sense. And yet this is how insane, insatiable people are in their sin. They'll believe that which is utterly ridiculous and impossible in order to justify their own sin and their unbelief because they don't want to believe in Christ because if they believed in him, they'd have to repent of their sins. They'd have to be like the Apostle Paul who would have to count all things lost. Everything, all their advantages would be gone and they would have to come just like everyone else as a sinner to Christ in need of grace and mercy and they don't want to give it up. So they have to come up with these lame, weak reasons for why they're not going to believe in Christ. Well, he only does it because he does it by the power of demons, right? That's the way that he does the things that he does. It's ridiculous. Okay, then verse 35. Jesus was going through all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Here, 35 gives us a general summary of what he was doing. Going through cities, villages, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is what he's doing day in and day out. Going to cities, to villages throughout the area. He goes to the synagogues and he's preaching the gospel to the people. He's proclaiming the word of the Lord. And then also with that, healing them of diseases and sickness. The focus here, though, is where? It's on the teaching. The right. teaching is what's put forth first. That's the primary. And then the healing is to support the teaching ministry, to be a verification to the people that they should listen to the words of Christ. And then when he sees the people in the state that they are in, and these are the people of Israel, the people who have access to the word of God, yet they are 
distressed and dispirited like sheep with no shepherd, and he has compassion on them because of their ignorance and they are untaught in the things of God. That's what he means here when he says that they are like sheep without a shepherd. Well, who are the shepherds? But the pastors, the teachers. Well, where are their teachers? What are their teachers telling them? They're not teaching them the word of God. And this is why the people are in such a miserable state because their teachers are worthless. They are detestable. They're not proclaiming to them the word of God. Isn't that what Jesus says in John chapter three? Are you the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and you don't even understand these things? How can you even begin to teach the Bible and not understand regeneration, new birth, that you must be born again, the Holy Spirit? How can you teach and not know these things? But this is the types of teachers that they had. And this is why he has compassion on them. And then how does he show his compassion to them? What does he do for them? He teaches them the Bible. This is the way he shows his love and compassion to the people by teaching them the word of God. That is the compassionate thing to do when people are untaught in the word of righteousness is to teach them the word of God. His compassion wasn't shown to them by giving them food, by giving them water, giving them medicine, uh, uh, coddling them in their sin, befriending them, having them over to watch movies, going and playing sports with them. That's not the kind of compassion Jesus was having. His compassion is shown to them in his teaching ministry, in that he proclaimed to them the word of God. Then, at that point, it's up to the people to believe then they are obligated to believe in him. Some people would, but other people would respond to his compassion with what? Hatred, vitriol, right? rejection, that they would not. So when it talks about Jesus being compassionate, merciful, many people have this idea that he's coddling people in their sin, but that's not the case at all. His compassion is seen in his proclamation of the word of God, because that's what it means for them to be like sheep without a shepherd. They are sheep in that they are, in a sense, they belong to the household or to the flock of God, but their shepherds have failed them because those who have been charged with teaching the word of God to them are not doing that, but instead are feeding themselves on the flock. And this is very similar to our own day as well. The shepherds are, for the most part, worthless because they're not teaching the word of God. And so what do we need? We need to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the harvest field. We need to pray to God to raise up men of God, preachers of righteousness who have conviction and courage to boldly preach the word of Christ. This is the compassionate thing to do for people who are distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That's what we need. We need workers who can go into the harvest field and proclaim the word of God, who can go into the churches and teach the word of God to the people in that way. That doesn't mean that all the people are going to love them. Many of them will probably hate them, but that's the compassionate thing to do. Okay, so we'll go ahead and stop there for tonight. I was going to make it through that chapter, and we did. So we powered through there at the end. And uh, we've got a few minutes for any questions or comments.